from NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring caused a huge controversy in 1962 when it was first published in the New Yorker magazine. A one-woman show explores her writing and how Rachel Carson felt about her book being the impetus for legislation banning DDT. The Robins returned to Lansing, Michigan, and they ate the worms. Eleven large earthworms can transfer a lethal dose of DDT to a robin. A robin can eat eleven worms in as many minutes. Also, a new twist on extreme weather. There's a tornado right out my back door! Oh my God! Ah! Why it's better not to kvetch about the weather, and how to raise an orphan elephant style. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The organic food industry is the fastest-growing segment for food sales in the U.S., rising by 20% a year. Produce, poultry, dairy, and meat can be certified organic by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and now purveyors of seafood are trying to cash in and get their products certified organic as well. But as Rachel Gottbaum reports, creating organic standards for fish is a complicated matter. Though it looks like an ordinary farm with sprawling acres of greenhouses, Ocean Boy Farms in Clewiston, Florida, is different. For one thing, it's the only farm in the country where shrimp are grown inland. There's also no polluting runoff. The water in the 24 man-made ponds where the shrimp are raised is treated and recycled. On a spring afternoon, Vice President of Production Michael Mullione drives his black truck around for a tour of the 900-acre property. These paddle wheels are important because it moves the water in a circular motion and concentrates whatever wastes are generated in the pond towards the center drain. All visitors must wear protective white lab suits to keep from contaminating the shrimp stocks. That's because these shrimp are not treated with antibiotics or other additives. If they get sick, the whole batch must be destroyed. And they're fed what Mollion calls 100% organic feed, made from tilapia cultivated on the farm. Inside the greenhouse, millions of tiny translucent shrimp are growing in large tanks that look like bathtubs. The water is algae green. These little lines that you see, this is the vein of the shrimp, what most people like in an adult shrimp to take out, that's the intestine. And you'll see that all these animals have full guts, which means they're fully fed. Part of that food is the organic uh, formula that we give them. Ocean Boy Farms is the only seafood company in the United States to receive USDA organic certification. The owners hope that their $50 million business investment will pay off because they're banking on consumer demand for organic products continuing to grow. Nowhere was that demand more obvious than at the International Seafood Show held recently in Boston. This is the largest trade show for seafood in the U.S. For the first time in its history, among the hundreds of fishmongers from around the globe, a handful were selling organic products. The largest seller is Emerald Organics, a two-year-old company which markets fish certified organic in Europe and South America. Michael McNichols runs the company and was showing off his products to a buyer from China. The one in the back is croaker, that's farmed in the Mediterranean. In front of the cod is uh, salmon, which is farmed in Ireland. 
In front of that is sea, uh, sea bass and sea bream. We have a number of other products, such as organic sturgeon and caviar, which are farmed in Spain. At the other end of the hall, a buyer from one of America's largest food companies gave his pitch to the salespeople at the Ocean Boy Farms organic shrimp booth. Bill Bush is a purchasing manager for Nestle USA. Our consumer is, you know, especially on the lean cuisine side, uh-huh. they are health conscious. Okay. Yeah. And Nestle's is moving to a wellness company. We don't even like to be called a food company anymore. Right. We're a wellness company, right. health and wellness. It seems almost every company is interested in getting in on the wellness craze. The buzz about organics doesn't surprise Howard Johnson. He runs his own seafood marketing and research firm called H.M. Johnson and Associates. Uh, more and more you're going to see uh, uh, in these trade booths words like wild, natural, organic, sustainable. Uh, people are starting to get the message that there's a market for this. And I've been in this business for 30 years, and that's sort of a sea change, if you will. It's, it's exciting to the industry because the organic food market in this country is growing by about 19 to 20 percent a year, has been for the last five years. So the seafood people see that, and they would like to become a part of that, and the retailers and consumers would also like to see that. There are still no organic standards for seafood in the U.S. Ocean Boy Farms received its certification under the livestock rules, and the USDA is currently challenging that decision made by one of its contracted certifiers. Currently, U.S. consumers can buy fish that has been certified organic from Europe and other countries. But that worries some people. The upshot is that when consumers in this country buy seafood that is labeled organic in a grocery store, they really don't know what they're getting. Becky Goldberg is senior scientist for environmental defense in New York. The organically certified fish that's imported may be fed diets that are actually relatively high in contaminants like PCBs and dioxins. So there isn't even a guarantee that you're getting a healthy product when you buy so-called organic seafood at a store in the United States. Goldberg helped the government develop its current national organic standards. She says certifying farm-raised or even wild fish is much more complicated and expensive than organic livestock or crops. If you have a farm, you own the piece of land, you can control what goes on in that piece of land. For the most part, you can create an organic system that most people would be comfortable with. But it's different in the ocean, which is held in the public trust. It's everybody's. And so no individual who is farming a fish in the ocean has nearly as much control over what goes on. Goldberg worries that politics and market pressures to certify certain species of fish will end up watering down organic standards. For example, organically raised livestock must be fed on organic diet. But salmon are carnivores and are fed on other ocean fish that may be contaminated. Would salmon farmers be willing to overhaul production methods and invest in new technology needed to create organic fish feeds? Current organic standards also call for strict waste and reuse protocols. Most farm-raised fish is grown in nets out in the ocean. How would fish farmers recycle waste and keep pollutants from entering the ocean's ecosystem? Those are questions that remain unanswered. On a recent afternoon, the Whole Foods Market in Swampscott, Massachusetts, is quiet. There are a few people at the fish counter, where farmed and wild fish from waters near and far are displayed. Can I get a pound of the haddock? Can you take the skin off? Whole Foods is the largest retailer of organic food in the U.S. 
The market chain's fish sales grew by 15% last year, but none of the seafood was labeled organic. Dave Pilot is the Northeast Regional Seafood Director for Whole Foods. He says until USDA standards are developed for seafood, placing an organic label on fish is confusing to consumers. When organic seafood started coming out in the marketplace, we took a look at the different certifying bodies, and it was easy to notice that the certifying bodies in Europe all have different standards. So we said, for now, it would be fairest not to use the word organic. In 2003, at the urging of Alaska lawmakers, Congress gave the USDA authority to develop organic standards for wild fish. Alaska sells 95% of all wild salmon in the U.S., Recent reports that farmed-raised salmon can be contaminated with PCBs and other toxins gave the Alaska fishing industry a boost, and sales of wild salmon reached $235 million last year. Alaska fishermen don't want to lose that market edge and are pushing to get their products certified organic, too. Wild salmon is exactly what consumers are thinking of when they think of the word organic. Bill Wolf is a legislative assistant for Senator Lisa Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska. A wild salmon that is spawned in absolutely pristine fresh waters, swims out to sea in the cold waters of the North Pacific. It is not picking up any contaminants and swims back into that same pristine stream, and it's caught at the absolute peak of condition. That's the most natural product that I can imagine from anywhere in the world, and yet the organic food industry says, oh, no, you can't use our label. Wolf says in order to give wild fish and some types of farm-raised seafood an organic label, new standards may have to be adopted. And that's exactly what environmentalists and those in the organic community worry about. Whole Foods fish buyer Dave Pilot. If it's decided that wild fish can also be termed organic, I think that would set a dangerous precedent. I think folks, when they buy organic, it's all about the source. They want to know where it came from, what feed, what's in the feed, how it was raised. And with wild fish, I think it's, it's almost impossible to know. Fish can swim for thousands of miles. They, fish are migratory. So to label any seafood organic, I think, could at, at the least be a, a tricky situation. That's one of the tricky situations the USDA is just now beginning to grapple with. The agency is currently assembling a task force to begin work developing organic standards for aquatic animals. Consumers can expect to find fish certified with the USDA organic label in markets sometime next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Rachel Gottbaum. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your iPod or other personal listening device. The address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You can reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800 800- 218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15. And now this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. 
New research from England suggests that ducks, like their human counterparts, have regional accents. According to Dr. Victoria de Rijka of Middlesex University, a duck's environment is a big factor when it comes to fine-tuning its dialect. De Rijka recorded the various sounds of cockney ducks in the heart of London and their Cornish cousins at a farm in Cornwall. The mallards were all born and bred in their respective locales, and after some careful listening, De Rijka noticed some audible differences. These Cornish ducks communicate in long, relaxed quacks. De Rijka attributes this to the slow pace of country living. These city ducks prefer louder, brassier quacks. De Rijka believes that the fast pace of London breeds louder, more stressed ducks. These quack scents are much like the accents of human inhabitants of the same regions. Cornish speakers are known for their more open and drawn-out sounds, whereas the Cockney brogue uses shorter and more guttural vowels. In the future, Dr. Dereka hopes to take this duck research abroad and explore the quacks of Scottish, Welsh, and Irish fowl throughout the British Isles. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. Coming up, a look at the weather and why we should stop complaining so much. Well, unless you get hit by lightning, that is. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Okay, so when's the last time you got through the day without talking to someone about the weather? Let's see. I like to complain that it's too hot or maybe it's too muggy, and then I might ask if this drought has lasted long enough, and, oh, please, no, not another hurricane. Yeah, we love the weather, we love to complain about it, and sometimes we're terrified of it. Producer and media maven Guy Hand has been musing about a torrent of unwarranted attacks on the weather, and... He's had enough. We interrupt this program for a storm warning. Uh, city officials have declared a snow emergency in New York City. More oh, dramatic video out of Utah where more homes have collapsed in the floodwaters. Take a look at this. A rare thunderstorm rocks Hollywood tonight as it passes over the L.A. basin. It's another season of media-induced meteorological mayhem. TV news loves bad weather nearly as much as it loves a new Michael Jackson trial. And that can give the rest of us the feeling that we're at war with weather and losing. What you see is happening now. That we're on the verge of being flushed, freeze-dried, or fried at any moment. But that's not fair. Bad weather isn't all bad. I learned that from doing time in paradise. I moved to Santa Barbara, California in the early 90s, near the beginning of a very long drought, an endless summer that lasted seven years. Should we head back to the hotel and get our bathing suits on and go to the beach? At first, I couldn't get enough of blue skies and warm breezes. It was, after all, the reason so many of us had deserted the bad weather fronts of Buffalo, Chicago, and Boise in the first place. But after a few years, all that stormless perfection began to drive me a little crazy. And now, the weather report. Sunny, 72. This scene from L.A. story felt less like comedy than depressing documentary. Our next weather report will be in four days. This paradise was a climate on Prozac. It was enough to make you ache for clouds, for the smell of rain and the crack of thunder, for something, anything in the sky. As the sun vaporized reservoirs, roasted lawns, and wrinkled faces, I started searching for real weather. But the only place I could find it 
was TV. The ultimate guide to extreme weather on the Discovery Channel. It may have been sunny in Southern California, but all over the airwaves, the skies were falling. And now the conclusion of Nor'easters, Killer Storms, here on the History Channel. Until then, I'd never noticed how TV, especially cable TV, demonizes weather. There's a tornado right out my back door! But you can see why. Weather provides a flood of sensational footage often shot by amateurs for free. And weather comes with no legal representation or political affiliation, and that makes it an easy target. Free of the risk that temper reporting on more controversial environmental issues, program sponsors may pull funding for a story about a pollution problem at a local pulp mill, but nobody's going to protest a negative take on tornadoes. It is your ultimate nightmare the world's strongest tornado on your doorstep. We often demonize what we can't control. Weather is an unruly wilderness floating right over our heads. And unlike some wilderness we find underfoot, the wilderness in weather is really wild. Look, look at this. We got Hurricane Grace moving north off the Atlantic seaboard. Huge. Getting Bad weather is a magnet for melodrama, like the scene from The Perfect Storm. It gathers up all the insecurities we have about being small creatures in a big universe, and it pushes that frailty right in our faces. You could be a meteorologist all your life and never see something like this. It would be a disaster of epic proportions. It would be the perfect storm. We can move mountains, we can dam rivers, we can even clone sheep. Get down below. But we can't alter the genetic code of lightning. We can't pass a speed limit on hurricanes. Oh my God. It's happening. And with every wild storm, we wonder if this one, if this one is payback time. God's wrath fueled by global warming. Big storms, after all, are a biblical tradition, a favored tool for retribution. Make a big wave, send it crashing down on us, destroy us all if need be. But scientists, when they can be heard over this stormy pandemonium, try to remind us that most storms do little lasting damage, and the death and destruction they do cause is often heightened by our habit of building homes in the wrong places. Scientists say that weather has always been weird, and that even the worst of it comes with big ecological benefits. Look at that. What? Have you ever seen the air so clear? Weather reports, along with the occasional big screen bad weather films like Twister, The Day After Tomorrow, and The Perfect Storm, seldom mention that storms do all kinds of ecological good, stirring up nutrients, recharging aquifers, cleansing the air, keeping the whole planet in atmospheric balance. TV news tightly focuses on the mudslides and floods, but runs off to some new disaster long before the wildflowers begin to bloom. Storms passing. One shot or two, some trash on the beach. In a few hours, there'll be little to remind you of what happened tonight. So, a few years ago, I moved back to bad weather country with a newfound respect for dark clouds, hard wind, and rain. Especially rain. 
the floodgates of heaven let it rain after suffering nearly a decade of blue skies and seeing what a natural disaster that can be i think it's time to come to the defense of bad weather it's time we accept bad weather as a vital natural resource one we as a nation should be proud of We brag about the height of Denali and the depth of the Grand Canyon. Why not the world's highest recorded winds and the deepest snow? America holds those records and the planet's biggest one-minute rain, the most tornadoes and nearly its hottest temperatures. If we're going to take pride in America's wild landscapes, shouldn't we include the one above our heads? And where would music be without all those meteorological metaphors? For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Han. Have a nice day. can't forget, though, that for some, weather can be a matter of life or death. Between 200 and 1,000 people in the U.S. are struck by lightning each year, and about 70 of them are killed. One person who lived to tell his tale is Russ Francis. He's a communications worker in Linden, Illinois, and we caught him on his cell phone as he was driving home from work. Russ, I hear it's optimal conditions for a conversation like this. Yeah, at the present time, I'm I'm just ahead of a huge thunderstorm. Uh, I get kind of... uh, antsy, I guess, when I see it storming like this. I hope this won't spook you too much, but could you tell me the story of when, when you did get struck by lightning? Yes. I, at the time, I, I worked for a communication company, and I was uh, repairing a line, and uh, it was raining out that day, and it had not been storming at all. And uh, I just had finished up the case of trouble that I was working on and, and shut the closure up, and uh, I was on the ground, and uh, just had stood up, and I remember seeing the flash came out my right hand, and the noise was something I can't even explain how loud the noise is. It's the loudest thing that I've ever experienced or heard or, or whatever. And I remember getting half thrown back, and the next thing I remember was uh, trying to get back into my truck. And at the time, it, it blew out the two-way radios that I had in our truck. I had no feeling at all on my right side. It was just about like I'd had a stroke. Wow. So this thing hits you, you see this flash come out of your hand, and then did it knock you out? Did you have to, did you have to wake up? I don't up? think I was ever completely knocked out. I, I know I was super stunned and sat there and went, got in, got in my, my, uh, my van, and I had a headset there where I could have went back and, and connected on and tried to call for help, and I thought, I'm not getting back out in this. Uh, so I... Uh, I ended up driving myself back into the office, which was about two and a half miles away. From there, my uh, 
my boss took me into the uh, emergency room with that. Now, you had some symptoms, You like your whole right side was weak and you lost your hearing. How, how long do those symptoms last? Well, I was off work for about three and a half years. For probably the first two years, I slept between 20 and 22 hours a day. Uh, it just zapped every bit of energy there was out of me. Uh, I, have, I still have terrible headaches. I had a lot of uh, trouble with dizziness and that. Uh, at the University of Illinois Chicago Hospital, they did a functional MRI, and they found out the one side of my brain had uh, pretty much got sizzled by it. So literally fried the brain, huh? Yep. But you're doing okay. You sound yeah, okay. I'm back to work. I, I, they uh, told me I'd never be back to work. I'm back to work. And the other side, I guess, is uh, taking care of the, uh, the side that's uh, been damaged. So we're, we're living life as well as we can. Now, now, what kind of reactions did you get from family and friends? I, I understand that uh, a lot of times people have a hard time believing people who say they've been hit well, by the lightning. Biggest, the biggest thing is 95% of the people, you have no burns or no marks on them. And I was one of those. That You have no, no physical things. They look at and you say, well, you look okay. You look healthy. And at the time, I couldn't walk across the room without being exhausted. And I, it, it gets kind of aggravating that way when, when people look at you in that regard. So, I mean, you don't have an arm blown off or you, you're not uh, sizzled like a uh, overdone hot dog. So they think you, you should be okay. Well, you're not. I guess my kids have, have had to deal with me in your mood swings and not being able to remember things because your me- short-term memory gets pretty much hosed up. And the strengths you used to have are, are now weaknesses. How has it affected your extracurricular activities? I'm wondering, in particular, if you're a golfer. Well, I wasn't a golfer prior to that. I was an avid skydiver prior to that. And after that happened, I had trouble with blacking out and things like that. I had to uh, pretty much stop doing that sport. That that was hard. I mean, you, your physical things that you used to be able to do, you can't do. You, you learn to uh, compensate for that, I guess, otherwise. Now, do you have any advice for me? It's the summer season. And uh, seems to me that the, the thunder and lightning storms come this time of year, the hazy, hot, and humid weather. What would you advise me to do? I guess one of the things that bothers me is if I see a coach trying to get that one more inning in or one more batter up or, or something like that or one more playoff or get one more hole in, it can change your life, and it's not worth it. And so what if I'm all of a sudden caught out in the middle of it, and it seems like, oh, wow, this is definitely lightning time. Anything I can do? Get yourself in an enclosed structure, uh, like a building, uh, with sides on it, and preferably something that's got uh, wiring in it or whatever. Uh, Like a park shelter or a tent is not a good place to be. Under a tree is one of the terrible places to be. A car is okay. It's not the best place to be, but it's better than being out in the open. So right now, are you still out running the storm? No, I pulled over right now so we could have a decent cell phone conversation, but it, it, the storm is catching up to me. Well, I guess you better get a move on that. Tell your people, though, if you hear it, fear it. If you see it, flee it. Russ Francis works in the communications business in Linden, Illinois. Russ, thanks for taking this time with me. And, uh, hey, get home out of the storm, would you? Yes, I will. Yeah, let's face it, there are many things in life that used to be free that seem to cost money these days. There's, what, a brisk business in bottled water, oxygen bars are springing up in cities, and now you can buy a can of mud to spray on your vehicle. 
That's right. Colin Dows is the owner of Spray on Mud in Shrewsbury, England, and he joins us now. Hello, sir. Hi there. Now, why would folks want to buy mud to spray on their vehicles? I mean, they already have to pay at the car wash to get them clean. Yeah, but we were down in a pub uh, late on a Friday night with a few of the guys, and we started uh, thinking about ideas, and someone said, well, what about all these people that uh, drive four-wheel drives and never go in the country? We ought to develop something for them. And so we came up with the idea of spray on mud. Well, now, why develop spray on mud for these? You think they're embarrassed to be driving these giant gas hogs? They are, and they only use them to go and collect the, the, the kids from school or go down to the shopping mall. Their neighbors think, well, they've got that gas guzzler, and they don't go off-road. Now they can fool them. Now, um, Colin, exactly what are the ingredients in spray mud? It's pure Shropshire mud. I see. It's, it's refined, of course. We take out all the stones and twigs, but it's real Shropshire mud. And what color is it? Well, it's a reddish, sort of brownish color. So how well is it selling? It's flying off the shelves. Yeah? I'm just shipping a load to Japan. Uh, we're opening up uh, distributorships in Canada and in the U.S. I'm talking to people in uh, Germany and, and Holland. The interest is phenomenal. We've had 100,000 hits on our website. What's the art to this? How should I be painting my vehicle with this? Well, art, I've never, I've not thought about that. It just, it feels good to spray mud all over a car, I tell you. Colin, I've got to ask you, is your next business venture a chain of car washes? <laughs> That's a good idea. No, it'll be something else that we think up on a Friday night in a pub. Colin Dows is the owner of Spray on Mud. He's talking to me from his office in Shrewsbury, England. Thanks for taking the time, Colin. Okay, thanks. Bye. Cheerio. Just ahead, in Nairobi, Kenya, motherless elephants are being kept alive and set free back into the wild thanks to the round-the-clock care they get at an elephant orphanage.
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In many parts of Africa, elephants are vanishing. In the 1980s alone, half the population was killed by poachers, and that prompted a worldwide ban on the sale of ivory tusks. Today, only 600,000 or so wild African elephants remain, out of perhaps 10 million two generations ago. But the killing hasn't stopped, as there is still plenty of commerce in illegal ivory as well as elephant meat. Slaughtered elephant herds often leave behind orphan baby elephants, which have little chance of survival. That is, unless they happen to wind up in a baby elephant nursery, like the one visited by Living on Earth's Susan Shepherd in Nairobi National Park, Kenya. Keeping an orphaned elephant under two years of age alive is a tricky proposition under even the best of circumstances. 30 years ago, it was a near impossible task. (coughs) Nothing keepers like Daphne Sheldrick fed infant elephants kept them from suffering the same fate, starvation. When they first come in, um, they all just want to die. They've lost their elephant family. They're very, very fragile in infancy, and they can be fine one day and dead the next. Uh, it took me 28 years to succeed in raising the, an infant African elephant. The role of animal protector is one 70-year-old Daphne Sheldrick prepared for all her life. Born in Kenya, she grew up on a farm in the highlands and cared for her first orphaned animal, an antelope, when she was three years old. In her early 20s, she moved to Savo National Park in southeast Kenya, where her husband was game warden, and she spent 30 years there learning about the psychology and sociology of elephants. You know, when you take on an elephant, it really is a lifetime, and I've been working now with elephants for 50 years. The key to keeping baby elephants alive, says Sheldrick, was finding the right formula to feed them. They couldn't digest the fat content in most milk formulas, though no one knew that was the problem until Sheldrick stumbled on something that worked through sheer luck and trial and error. The secret elixir was a mixture of coconut oil added to a fat-free milk base. I found that they could live longer on skim milk, so I knew the problem was the fat. This eureka moment was the start of the Elephant Orphan Project in Nairobi National Park, where Sheldrick convinced the government to allow her to set up this orphanage nearly 30 years ago. On a bright, warm day in Kenya, young elephants romp in a dusty clearing. They are the current crop from the more than 60 young elephants that have been brought here over the years. Edwin Lusici, their 27-year-old keeper, says they are thriving. This is a boy? Yeah, he's a boy. Nine months old now. The baby elephants spend their days chasing each other, rolling in the red clay soil, butting their heads up against anything they can find, especially against their keepers, who are more like nannies. I've been here for the past five years, and uh, it's just because I like animals in general. That's why I landed getting this job. 
And that's the other key to keeping orphaned elephants alive. Elephants are such social creatures that they need constant company. Their keepers stay with them 24 hours a day, which means curling up right next to them to sleep at night. This elephant is called Waleni. He's about uh, five months now. She was rescued from a Savoist, just found lying alone in the park. As Lucici talks, one of the smallest elephants in the group puts the end of her trunk against his round, good-natured face and touches his nose, his cheek, and then covers up his eye with her nimble snout. Lucici removes her trunk gently from his face, laughing. Then she comes after my microphone. What is he doing right now? Just suckling from my fingers. Sort of like when a kid sucks his thumb? Yeah. (laughs) They're just like human babies, actually. Not every baby elephant brought to the nursery survives, and it's nearly impossible to tell which ones will make it. As Lucici explains, all of them are traumatized from being separated from their mothers or witnessing the massacre of all of the older elephants in the herd. It's always difficult to handle when they're new, because they've been in the wild and they only know the wildlife. And you see, they saw the human poaching the mothers, so they won't be friendly to you. It takes some time, so it's quite a difficult job to handle a new karma in the nursery. Lucici tells the story of the two-day-old elephant he helped rescue last summer. They named her Wendy, which means hope, because she seemed much too young to possibly survive. She was just found lying alone in a swamp. She was still fresh from the mother's womb. The, the, all the body was very soft. The skin, the ears were still very pink. In fact, she had part of the ear folded to one side. And uh, just getting hold of her, you could feel... You could feel she's very slippery. She could want to fall down and very, very tiny, the tiniest I've ever seen. And so could you pick her up? Yeah. It takes about $750 a month to care for a baby elephant. The money comes mostly from donations. People around the world foster these elephants. Daphne Sheldrick says most of that money pays for the 40 pints of formula a day it takes to feed one of these infants. A lot of people say, well, oh, that's a lot of money to spend on a few little orphaned elephants. But what they don't understand is that these elephants are uh, uh, tremendously valuable for extending the knowledge about elephants. Because when you raise an animal like an elephant, you, you learn how it feels and thinks. You know it as well as your own human children. When the elephants turn two, they are trucked to Savo National Park and are gradually reintroduced into the wild. Elephants are housed and fed at a holding site, and keepers take them on long walks to introduce them to roaming wild herds. Generally quite gregarious animals, the wild elephants almost always welcome the orphans. Their keepers think life in the wild is more stimulating than living with humans, so eventually almost all of the young take up with a herd. Still, Sheldrick says many of the orphans return to the holding area on a regular basis. Another one of our females brought back a calf that had a snare around its leg. This was a wild-born calf. And, uh, of course, it was wild. Our keepers couldn't actually handle it. And it was tearing around, and Lisa, the mother, just walked into the stockades and started feeding. The calf was screaming its head off, and any mother elephant normally hearing that sound would have gone berserk. But she trusted the keepers so much that she just went on quietly feeding. And then the other orphans surrounded this calf and sort of held it in the middle so it couldn't escape, so that our keepers could crawl underneath their bellies and remove the snare from that leg. And that just shows how intelligent elephants are and how they can reason and think. 
Yet, Sheldrick is the first to say that her orphanage doesn't replace elephant families. Elephants are so smart and so complex that most people who study them say we don't know the true trauma they face when they've known the violent death of a family member and lose their communities. And because we can't know, Sheldrick does what she can to give back to these creatures what they've given to us. Recent stories about the tsunami in Indonesia, where the elephants knew the moment the earthquake happened under the ocean and started fleeing uphill. And as they were going, they were picking up people and putting them on their backs and saved a lot of human lives as well. So they are incredible animals, and um, that raises lots of questions about how they should be treated. Surrounded by the elephants living in her orphanage now and the memories of elephants she saved over a lifetime, Sheldrick basks in the knowledge that she's done everything she can for these elephant children, who fill Africa, as Kipling wrote, with their insatiable curiosities. For Living on Earth, I'm Susan Shepard in Nairobi, Kenya. This is the Violin Concerto of Ludwig von Beethoven, a favorite piece of music of a woman without whose work and dedication there might be no Earth Day. I didn't know what to do. All that was clear to me was that the information had to get out. People had no understanding of the risks they were being asked to take. We'd all been made so well aware of the benefits of these pest controls. But why had no one alerted us to their potential dangers? I decided to write the book. Rachel Carson called her book Silent Spring. Silent Spring because Ms. Carson wanted us to consider what our world would be like without the sounds of nature. Published in 1962, Silent Spring was a wake-up call for an increasingly technological society and a Bible for a fledgling environmental movement. We asked writer and actress Kalani Lee to read a few passages from a play she has written about the life of Rachel Carson called A Sense of Wonder. In Lansing, Michigan, there was a study linking the death of the robin population to the spraying of the elm trees. The elms, which were being treated for Dutch elm disease, were sprayed in the spring and again in July with two to five pounds of DDT per tree. In the autumn... The leaves fell, and as they decomposed, the earthworms fed on them, accumulating and concentrating the DDT in their bodies. Some of the earthworms died, but those that survived became biological magnifiers of the poison. In the spring, the robins returned to Lansing, Michigan, and they ate the worms. Eleven large earthworms can transfer a lethal dose of DDT to a robin. A robin can eat eleven worms in as many minutes. Not all the robins ate a lethal dose, but the few that survived were unable to produce a single living offspring. How did we get to this? I knew that by writing honestly about chemical contamination, I was plunging myself into a sort of war with the chemical industry. But I never imagined the full force of the industry's fury. Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent attempting to discredit not only the book, but the hysterical woman who wrote it. 
Fortunately, the attack seemed to have backfired, creating more publicity than my publishers ever could have afforded. But the controversy has been exhausting. Is it any wonder I don't want to leave the state of Maine? To stand here at the edge of the sea, to sense the ebb and flow of the tides, to feel the breath of a mist over the great salt marsh, to watch the flight of shorebirds that have swept up and down these continents for untold thousands of years, to see the running of the old eels and the young shad to the sea, is to have knowledge of things that are as nearly eternal as any earthly life can be. I'll never forget the night Mr. Sean telephoned me. William Sean is the editor of the New Yorker magazine. He had just read my manuscript and he telephoned saying everything I could have asked or hoped for. That night after Roger was asleep, I came back in here and I, I put on the Beethoven Violin Concerto. It's one of my favorites. And suddenly, the tension of the four years was broken and I let the tears come. And that night, the thoughts of all the birds and the other creatures, all the loveliness that is in nature, came to me with such a surge of deep happiness. I had done what I could. I had been able to complete it, and now it has its own life. Kaiulani Lee reading from her play A Sense of Wonder, based on Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and Under the Sea Wind, as well as material from the Carson biography The House of Life by Paul Brook. We've all seen pictures of an underwater coral reef, but do we know what it sounds like? Fish do, and as producer Alan Cockle discovered, some baby fish use sound to find their way home. Nick Tolomieri is a biologist at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle. Standing by the bay where he did his postdoc research, he explains how he recorded and played back the sounds of an underwater reef. So what we did was to go out at night and put a hydrophone in the water by a reef and record the noise that comes off a reef. And a reef can be incredibly noisy. Uh, this is just sound recorded off of a reef about an hour or two after sunset. And... The noise is mostly um, sea urchins and snapping shrimp. Um, a lot of the pops are probably the snapping shrimp. And both of these things tend to come out at night, and it's actually been called the evening chorus. A lot of marine organisms, especially fish, spend their adult lives on a reef but disperse to the open ocean as babies. Later, these larval fish somehow find their way back to the reef. These little fish larvae that are only, say, a centimeter, two centimeters long, they can actually locate a reef from as far away as a kilometer or two. They seem to know where they are, and they'll avoid reefs during the day, probably because they don't want to be eaten by the bigger fish. To find out how the fish find their way back, Ptolemyeri went fishing at night, 
playing tapes of underwater reef sound and catching the fish larvae in an illuminated underwater net called a light trap. We put some light traps out with sound equipment and some light traps out without sound equipment and see how many are coming to the ones with sound and the ones without sound. And for the species we've done so far, we've gotten about five times as many reef fish in the ones with sound as we have in the ones without sound. Not only can fish larvae hear extremely well, but they're also good swimmers. Scientists have found that some species, following the siren call of the reef, can swim up to 300 miles without eating or stopping. For Living on Earth, I'm Alan Cockle. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Before we go, one more stop in Kenya at a watering hole where hippopotami cool off on a hot summer day. Susan Shepard recorded this water symphony at the Lala Roque River in the Maasai Mara. is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Susan Shepard, Jennifer Chu, Steve Gregory, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Dennis Foley mixes the program. Wilson Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Air. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Oak Foundation for coverage of marine issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.